Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 34 of my podcast. I don't know about you guys, but I used to have a phase where I was obsessed with Lifetime movies. I just remember watching them growing up with my mom and with my friends and they were always so intense. I feel like they taught me a lot of life lessons and you know, most of the movies are actually based on true stories. There was this one movie growing up that really affected me and to this day, I still think about it. it was a movie called No One Would Tell starring Candace Burr from Full House and Fred Savage. This is a movie about a 14-year-old student who begins dating a 16-year-old senior in high school. Their relationship is not good, it's very toxic, he emotionally abuses her and then that quickly turns to physical abuse. It's really hard for the main character of the movie, which is named Stacy, to recognize this abuse and in the end her life was actually cut short because of this relationship. The movie definitely brings awareness to domestic violence and it's based on the true story of what happened to 14-year-old Amy Carnavali. This is just an absolutely heartbreaking case. We are going to be talking about domestic violence and one of the reasons why this movie always stuck with me is because anybody could be Stacy and, you know, Amy in real life. This could happen to your friend, to your sister, to your cousin, to your loved one and it's just so important to bring awareness to domestic violence, to the signs to look out for, to resources that you can reach out to and just to let people know that you're not alone and that you can get help for this. There is just so much information to go over, so let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Amy. Amy Carnavali was born on April 13th, 1977 in Danvers, Exus County, Massachusetts. She was born to her father, Michael, who was a science teacher, and to her mother, Cynthia, who worked as an investment advisor. She also had a brother named Christopher, who was four years older than her, and after her birth, her family actually relocated to Beverly, which is about a 10-minute drive from Danvers. For some time, you know, they had a really good life. You know, the family was really close. Things were going well between them. But when Amy was six years old, her parents decided that it was time for them to get a divorce, which of course is never easy for the parents involved and it's not easy for the children involved. So growing up, it was really difficult for Amy to deal with this divorce, but she ended up developing into such a beautiful, smart and kind young girl. Friends and family say that she was very popular at school. She was a cheerleader. She played field hockey and she was just everyone's friend. I feel like we all know that type of girl. You know, the one that gets along with everyone, the one that's really sweet, and you just kind of think to yourself like, wow, that is genuinely a nice person. Well, that was literally Amy. She was the first one to see the best in anyone and the first to help out a friend. Everyone describes her as just being so positive, thoughtful, and she just had a really infectious smile. She was absolutely beautiful on the outside and on the inside. Ever since Amy was a little girl, she really loved nature. She enjoyed going outside, walking, and she just really loved the outdoors, even as a teenager. Her and her father would often play golf together once or twice a week, so she still did have a close relationship with her parents. Her plan when she grew up was to become a hairstylist, and in order to start, you know, practicing and getting her foot in the door, she would cut her friend's hair and her family member's hair. At the time of her death, Amy had just graduated from middle school and was getting ready to become a freshman at Beverly High School. Since she was a cheerleader in middle school, she had already been offered a spot on the junior high school cheerleading team, which is a really big deal and a really big accomplishment. She was really proud of this and just very excited about this new chapter in her life. 
Things honestly seemed to be going well in Amy's life. She had a lot of friends, she was about to enter high school, and at the time, she also had a boyfriend named Jamie Fuller. Now, while everything else in her life seemed to be a positive thing, Jamie was not. They were pretty much in an on and off again relationship. When Amy was 12 years old, she met Jamie through some of their mutual friends, and he was actually two years older than her. So at the time of her death, he was already 16 years old, and she was only 14 years old. And he was already a student at Beverly High School. Now, Jamie just wasn't a good person. You know, he was actually known as being kind of a troublemaker. You know, some people might call him a bad boy, but he was pretty much a bad person. In fact, pretty much everyone that he hung out with were known to be troublemakers. They were just not a good group of teens and there was just something off about him. In high school, he was pretty skinny and he wanted to change that. So he decided to get into weightlifting and he would actually use steroids to grow his muscles. So day by day, he started getting bigger and bigger and Jamie grew to be a pretty strong teenager. So he just wasn't a good person. You know, that's just the facts of the case. You know, he was not someone that was very likable and he was not a good boyfriend to Amy whatsoever. In fact, he was actually very terrible to her and friends described their relationship as being very unhealthy. It was not uncommon to see Jamie and Amy fighting at school, fighting outside of school and in a more social setting. And friends say that it wasn't even uncommon for Jamie to get in Amy's face in front of other people. So he would get in her face, he would grab her arm in front of other people. He would say very degrading things to Amy in public to purposely embarrass her. He was just a type of guy that made strict rules for his girlfriend. So he wanted to control what she would wear, how how she would look, who she would talk to, and one of the main rules that he had is that she was not allowed to be friends with any boys, which is just so upsetting to hear. I get so emotional when it comes to, you know, cases like this and just seeing what this poor young girl had to go through. She was 14 years old dealing with this. I mean, you shouldn't deal with this at any age, but as a young girl dealing with a crazy boyfriend who controls what you wear, what you look like, and who you talk to, that is just absolutely not okay, and it breaks my heart that Amy had to deal with this. Now, a lot of people have categorized Jamie's behavior as displaying the behavior of coercive control. So for example, Jamie telling Amy what to wear, who to talk to, and what to look like is coercive control. He's telling her who she can and can't hang out with, so he's trying to isolate her from her support system. You know, he's basically telling her like, you don't need these friends, you don't need these people in your life, all you need is me. Coercive control is also verbal abuse, you know, including humiliating and degrading language, which as Amy's friends have said, Jamie would do. You know, he would literally insult her in front of other people just to embarrass her. Now, just a little quick fact check. As of 2020, California was the first state to allow coercive control to fall under the domestic violence category, but only in family court. However, this does now allow you to get a restraining order against the person who is doing this to you. Now, since 2020, Hawaii and Connecticut have also added laws about coercive control. The reason why coercive control is becoming more recognized as a crime is because in a lot of cases, it's been proven to be what happens to victims before they are physically abused or even killed. It's just really important for people to know what this type of behavior is, you know, what signs to look out for, and to inform your friends when you think it's potentially happening to them or to yourself. So as you can see, Jamie was just not a good person. What's really shocking is that Jamie actually had a record. He was arrested twice in 1990 for assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, which is insane, and he was currently on parole while he was dating Amy. 
I'm not sure if Amy knew about this, if her friends knew about this, or if it was like a secret, but that alone just shows that he has a history of being aggressive and violent. There's really not that much information as to what Amy was thinking during this time or how she explained this toxic relationship to her mom and to her friends. What we do know is that they were breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, and then getting back together again. So it was definitely a very tumultuous relationship and just things in her love life were not going well. On top of that, her family was also going through a difficult situation. As I mentioned, Amy's parents got divorced when she was just six years old. And then after that, her mom and dad actually got remarried. So Amy was living with her mom and with her stepdad for some time. But just before her death, her mom and her stepdad actually got divorced. So now Amy and her mom were kind of just hopping around, you know, staying at different friends' houses until they figured out what they were going to do next. For about 10 days, Amy had actually been staying with another girl named Diane Wagger. Diane was 15 years old, and what was really shocking, like when I read this, is that Diane was actually Jamie's ex-girlfriend. I am not sure how this situation worked out, you know, how Amy ended up becoming friends with Diane and how she ended up staying at her house for some time, but she did. Amy and her mom finally figured out what they were going to do and they were going to move into a new house on September 5th, 1991. They were excited to finally have a place of their own and they were looking forward to this move-in date. But unfortunately, Amy would never get to move into this new home with her mom because on August 23rd, 1991, Amy was murdered. That day was a Friday. 14-year-old Amy was still staying at Diane's house at this point because again, her and her mom were gonna move into their new space on September 5th. At this point, Amy was no longer in a relationship with Jamie. She had recently broken up with him and it seemed like she was pretty serious this time. You know, as I mentioned earlier, they would break up, get back together again, break up, and then just kind of repeat the cycle. But this time, Amy seemed pretty secure with her decision. Later that day, Amy went to field hockey practice, but Jamie actually showed up. Witnesses say that they saw the pair speaking and then getting into an argument. After the field hockey practice, Amy went back to Diane's house and that's when she started getting a handful of calls from Jamie. He was just being very persistent. You know, he was calling and calling, trying to get Amy to go meet with him in person. He was not happy about the breakup and he kind of used the fact that Amy was a hairstylist as a way to get Amy to speak with him in person. So he literally asked her, you know, can you go give me a haircut? And Amy agreed to do this. Why Amy agreed to give him a haircut, we're not sure. I do just wanna emphasize that Amy is only 14 years old. So before people criticize her, I just think it's important to note that she was a young teenager at this time. And, you know, I definitely wish that she wouldn't have agreed to see him and cut his hair, but she did. And it's not like Amy hid this from her family. She straight up told her mom that she was going to go visit Jamie at his house, give him a haircut, and then she would be back home later that evening. Her mom agreed to this plan and then Amy headed out the front door. A few hours went by and Amy just never came home. She didn't call anyone to let them know where she was, to let them know that she was running late, nothing. Her family was starting to get worried about this. This was just not like Amy at all. Her father, Michael, and her stepmom, Laura, were actually the ones that called the police to let them know that Amy was missing. At first, the police suspected that maybe Amy had just run away, which as I've mentioned before, you know, on, on the podcast, this is such a common thing in these type of cases. I feel like police always think that it's like a runaway situation, but Amy's parents emphasized that she did not run away. 
Like, why would she do this? Why would she leave behind her wallet, her pocketbook, you know, all of her belongings? She literally left the house with nothing, so the family knew that something bad must have happened to her. Thankfully, police did listen to the family and they began to search for Amy. Their first stop was to go speak to Jamie because he was literally the last person known to have seen her. Amy told her mom that she was going to go see Jamie, so it just made sense to go speak to him first. When police spoke to him though, he said that he had no idea where Amy could be. He was very cooperative, you know, he answered any questions that detectives had, and he even joined the search parties looking for Amy. He consoled her family and her friends. He was just very active in the investigation. Police and the family searched everywhere, but there was just absolutely no sign of Amy. They literally had no idea what happened to her, who could have taken her or where she could have gone to. That was until a few days later on Wednesday, August 28th, 1991. This is when police got a tip regarding Amy's disappearance. The tipster told police that he knew where they could find Amy's body. They stated that her body was thrown in the shoe pond near the United Machinery Shoe Company. So police hear this tip and they start digging in to see who this tipster is because obviously this is very important information and they want to know who this person is and how they know this. They end up discovering that this tip came from 19-year-old Michael Mallette. So who is Michael? Well, it turns out that he is a friend of Jamie's. Detectives ask him, you know, how do you know this information? And that's when Michael went to go meet with police in person, and he pretty much told them everything that happened the day Amy went missing. So, Amy disappeared on August 23rd. Well, the day before her disappearance on August 22nd, Amy had plans to go to the beach with her friends. Now, there were going to be girls there, but there were also going to be boys at this hangout. Now, this didn't seem to be like a romantic hangout. You know, it was more of just like friends going to the beach together. Well, somehow Jamie found out about this plan and he was enraged. As I mentioned, one of the rules that he had for Amy is that she was not allowed to have any male friends. So him hearing that Amy was going to go to the beach with some guys while they were broken up just didn't sit right with him and it just made him so angry. It made him so angry that he actually told his friends that he was going to kill Amy so that she couldn't be with anyone else. It was basically the situation of, if I can't have her, no one can. So then the next day on August 23rd, when Amy went missing, he told his friends that he was actually going to murder Amy. It's actually so disturbing and just so disappointing to know that his friends knew about this plan, but they just didn't report it to the police. They didn't notify Amy's parents about this threat or Amy herself about these very frightening and you know very realistic threats. They literally did nothing. It's just so disappointing. And if someone tells you that they're going to murder someone, please call the police. Do it anonymously, you know, figure out a way to tell someone about this, but just don't accept it and just move on with your day. So Jamie started to create a plan of how he was going to get Amy to meet him in person. As we know, he used the haircut as a ruse to get Amy to go meet him at his house. When Amy arrived to privately speak with Jamie, you know, she thought that this was just going to be like them, you know, just her and Jamie alone to talk about the breakup, get the haircut over with, and just kind of just talk things out. However, when Amy arrived at Jamie's house, his friends were actually there. So there were four friends at this house. It was 15-year-old Dominic Sciola, Mark DeMoule, 19-year-old Michael Mal which is a guy that gave him the tip, and then 17-year-old Scott Ward. And all four of these guys knew the plan. In fact, when they were at Jamie's house, Jamie had actually come out of his bedroom and showed them the knife that he planned on using to kill Amy. 
He wrapped it in a towel and put it inside of a black backpack. After Amy arrived at the house, they all decided to go for a walk in the woods near his house, including his friends. So they all start walking, his friends are walking together, and then Amy and Jamie were walking slightly ahead of them. Now, according to his friends, Jamie and Amy then went off on their own and they went into a part of the woods where the friends could no longer see them. However, I do just want to say that a lot of people don't really believe this. You know, maybe the friends are just saying this to kind of save themselves by being like, well, we didn't see what was happening, but a lot of people don't know if that's actually the truth. So according to the friends, now Jamie and Amy are all by themselves. We're not really sure if they were talking at this point or what really happened, but all of a sudden, Jamie pulled out the hunting knife from his backpack and showed it to Amy. She tried to run away, but that's when he grabbed her and then repeatedly stabbed her in the stomach, back, and chest a total of 10 times. Even after this, Amy still tried to run away, but Jamie was able to catch up to her and he grabbed her by the hair and then he slit her throat. As I mentioned, the friends were not watching this, according to them, but they did say that they could hear everything, including Amy screaming. It's so disturbing to know that they could hear her screaming and fighting for her life, but they did nothing to help her. After brutally attacking Amy, she fell to the ground. She was trying to breathe and just trying to survive while Jamie just stood there watching her. According to Jamie, Amy said, I love you, Jamie. And this is what made him so mad. He just couldn't believe that she was saying this. So he decided to just stomp on her face to get her to be quiet. And that's how Amy died. If what Jamie is saying is true, you know, that her last words were, I love you. That is just absolutely heartbreaking. And she just probably was so shocked to see that the person that she loved was doing this to her. I can't even imagine how scared Amy was. And it just breaks my heart that she was screaming and that no one came to help her. After committing this terrible and gruesome crime, Jamie just simply returned to his friends, com completely covered in Amy's blood, and said, quote, it's done. After that, they all went back to Dominic's house, and Jamie washed off, you know, cleaned himself up, and then they drank some Kool-Aid, which he said was similar to blood. And then they all kind of just hung out while Amy's body was just left in the woods all alone. After this, they then helped Jamie get some supplies. And then at night, once it was dark, Jamie and Michael returned to the scene and they wrapped up Amy's body in garbage bags, actually making jokes about it the whole time, which is insane. Like these people are actually crazy. And after they wrapped her body, they carried her to Michael's car and drove off to go dispose of her body. After the drive, they carried Amy's body and they threw her body over a nearby fence. When Amy's body hit the ground, her bones made, you know, cracking sounds. And allegedly, Jamie joked and said, quote, don't break on me, Amy. Just further proof that he had no remorse for what he did. They continued to take her to Shoe Pond. They attached some cinder blocks to Amy and then they threw her body off the dock and into the water. Allegedly, Jamie said, quote, sucks to be you, Amy, as they watched her go underwater. After this, Michael said that Jamie took out Amy's blood-covered necklace and bracelets from his pockets, wiped them off, and then put on the necklace. And I do just want to point out that serial killers often keep trophies. So like, is that where Jamie was headed? After this, Jamie warned his friends that if any of them ratted him out, he would kill them too. And that is basically what happened the day that 14-year-old Amy was murdered. So detectives listened to all of this and they asked Michael, 
Why did you do this? Why did you help Jamie? And why did you keep this a secret from the start? That's when Michael said that he was genuinely scared of Jamie, that he was afraid of what he would do to him. And that's why he helped him, you know, get rid of the body and just kept everything undercover. However, we will later find out that that wasn't exactly true. So after telling police all of this information on August 28th, Michael took investigators to Shoe Pond and he showed them where they had left Amy's body. Police divers went into the pond and at around 7 30 in the morning they located amy's body amy's family was able to confirm that this was amy because she was wearing the same top and shorts that she was wearing the day she disappeared based on the first examinations it seems like amy had died on friday you know the day that she went missing so so far everything that michael was saying was true now that the police had found Amy's body, they were waiting for the autopsy results to come back. And in the meantime, they knew that they had to figure out where Jamie was, why he had done this, and who else was involved. Detectives start interviewing the other friends who were there because remember, that day there were four friends that were there and were a part of this. And it turns out that Jamie had talked about murdering Amy for over a year. And he even told his friends, you know, I don't even really like her anymore. Like, I don't want to date her. I don't want her to be my girlfriend, but I just can't allow her to be with anyone else. So now it's revealed that his friends knew about this for an entire year, but still they never warned Amy about this. They never warned her family or anyone. And again, it's just so disappointing. During the interrogation, the friends also revealed some very shocking information to detectives. They revealed that Amy was pregnant. When Jamie found out about the pregnancy, he was not happy about this and he even offered to pay some of his friend's money to punch Amy in the stomach or throw her down a flight of stairs to get rid of the pregnancy. I know it's all just too much to handle and he would also tell his friends that he would murder Amy if she didn't abort the pregnancy. Now, I do just wanna say that in the US, about 20% of women who die during pregnancy are victims of murder. So that makes a top cause of death for pregnant women murder which is absolutely insane. Like that's a very terrifying statistic. So the news about Amy being pregnant was very shocking to detectives. However, it was later revealed in the autopsy that Amy was actually not pregnant at the time of her death. So to them, that means that Amy must have terminated her pregnancy before. During the investigation, Jamie's ex-girlfriend, Diane, the one that I mentioned earlier, came forward and she said that Jamie was very abusive to her as well. Throughout the relationship, he was very physically abusive towards her and she also revealed that after their breakup and once Jamie was dating Amy, he actually told her that he was going to murder Amy. Diane said that he even revealed to her his entire plan how he was going to ask Amy to go on a long walk in the woods, how he was going to give her flowers, kill her, and then throw her body in the pond. I'm so confused by this, you know, like how does Diane know about all of this but didn't tell Amy? Amy was literally staying at her house, but yet this girl did not notify Amy about these threats and about this horrendous plan. Again, it's just so disturbing and like these people are like crazy. Like, I don't know why everyone just kept this a secret. After this, Jamie was arrested and he was charged with first degree murder. While he was arrested, he actually had a smile on his face and he even tried to chuckle. Again, this guy just shows he has absolutely no remorse for what he did to this 14-year-old girl. After his arrest, he was brought in for questioning and according to detectives, he was pretty calm during the questioning and he even tried to blame Amy's murder on his friends. Now, while his friends did not murder Amy, they did know about this and they did help him get rid of evidence and, you know, hide this plan. 
Michael, the one that gave in the tip to police, claimed that he only helped because he was intimidated by Jamie and he was scared of what he would do. Well, it turns out that that fact was not necessarily true. In fact, it was revealed that Michael had actually joked and laughed about helping Jamie hide Amy's body. So because of his involvement, he was also arrested just a few days after Jamie and he was being charged with being an accessory after the murder. After both Michael and Jamie were arrested, investigators said that it would be very likely that other people would also be arrested in regards to Amy's murder. They were also investigating the three other friends that were there because, I mean, they literally knew about the plan. They witnessed this, but didn't say anything, so they should be held accountable for this. While the investigation continued, Amy's funeral happened. Scott Ward, one of the four friends who was there the night that Amy was killed, actually attended Amy's funeral. And he even did an interview with the newspaper after the funeral ended. He said that Jamie would say things like, quote, she's at the mall walking around looking at guys and I'm going to kill her. Then in the same interview, he also said, quote, I'm still shocked. He's a very good friend. I don't believe he did it. Which again, I'm like, how does that even make sense? Because Scott was literally there the night that it happened and he was currently under investigation for his involvement in the murder. So I'm just so confused what is going on in these guys' brains. Like they just, something is just not right. Not long after this, investigators said that they couldn't find any evidence that proved the other boys directly helped in the actual murder. I'm not sure if back then there wasn't a law about not reporting a crime or how these three other guys were just let off. So Dominic, one of the friends that was there, wasn't arrested and instead he was given immunity to testify against Jamie and Michael. Mark also wasn't arrested and What's crazy is that Mark had actually taunted Jamie the morning of the murder and said, quote, he didn't have the balls to do it. Crazy. Scott also wasn't arrested. So again, I just don't understand how all of these friends weren't charged. They literally didn't tell anyone when Jamie said he was planning on murdering Amy. Not only did they not try to stop him or warn Amy, but they also like just like egged Jamie on and wanted to be there to see it all go down. And as Amy was lying there dying, they didn't try to help her or call 911. They all laughed about it and hung out after the fact and went to go drink Kool-Aid. It's just really disturbing and disgusting to me that they didn't have to face any type of punishment for this. You know, because if they had literally done anything, Amy would still be alive today. Now, one of the fathers of the three friends said that the boys didn't know about Jamie's plans to murder Amy and that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. That same article where that statement was given to also said that investigators believe that because Jamie did actually tell his friends that day that he was going to kill Amy, he felt that he just couldn't back down. You know, like in a way being like, oh, well, I already told my friends I was gonna kill her. Like I have to go through with my plan so they don't think I'm like a wimp which is again, just crazy. And going back to like the dad that was kind of defending the boys by being like, they didn't know what happened. Like they were at the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm like, how are you defending your children? Like, I get it. You love your child and you want to think that they aren't an evil person, but there's literally proof that they were there that night and that they knew about the murder. So I don't know. I just don't think they should be defending them. Now, moving into the trial, even though Jamie was 16 years old at the time of the murder, he was actually tried as an adult and he pleaded not guilty. Michael's trial would be separate from Jamie's and he also pleaded not guilty and he was set free on a $2,500 bail. So Jamie's lawyers tried to argue that the alcohol that Jamie would drink 
because I guess he was like kind of an alcoholic and the steroids that he would take to become like muscular and like big were the reason for Jamie's actions and said that if steroids are used excessively or abused, they can cause psychotic aggressiveness. However, a psychologist who evaluated Jamie said that he wasn't experiencing any type of psychosis. Now, the prosecutor's argument was that Jamie killed Amy out of jealousy. He was mad that Amy was going to the beach with her friends, that there were going to be boys there, and again, he was just always a jealous person to begin with. He never wanted her to talk to any boys. He didn't want her to dress a certain way. He was just so controlling, so the fact that they were now broken up and she was going to be around these boys made him so angry that he literally had the mentality of, if I can't have her, no one can. And I definitely agree with the prosecution. I think that's exactly what happened. The fact that his friend stated that he didn't even wanna get back together with Amy just shows that he didn't care what happened to Amy. He just knew that he didn't want her to be with anybody else and that the only way to do that was to kill her. And it's really frightening because I feel like we hear about so many cases like this where you know jealous exes just start to stalk you and they feel like, you know, there's no other option besides murdering you because again, they're just selfish and they don't want you to have anybody else or they don't want you to be happy unless it means being happy with them. And again, it's just so sad because Amy was only 14 years old and she was dealing with all of this and it's just really unfair. During the trial, the jury was actually brought out to Shoe Pond so that they could see, you know, where Amy's body was found and just kind of get a sense of what actually happened to her. During the trial, all of Jamie's friends testified against him. There was one friend named Ronald who testified that they took a carpentry class together and while they were working on a project in the spring of 1991, Jamie actually told him that Amy was pregnant. He also told him that the only way no one would find out about the pregnancy was if he killed her. Dominic, the friend that was there that night, also testified that after Jamie and Amy went into the woods, he heard multiple screams and then Jamie joined his friends. He testified that Jamie had blood on his hands, his forearms, and his shirt. He also showed them the knife and he said that it was broken and that the tip was bent. He said that Jamie told him later that day how him and Michael had disposed of Amy and the crunch sound her bones made. Dominic even said, quote, Jamie and Mickey like laughed. Like they laughed about the fact that Amy's bones were breaking as they threw her body into the pond. It's just all like truly disturbing. Mark also testified that after Jamie returned from murdering Amy, he told his friends that he first covered Amy's mouth, said, quote, Amy, I love you, and then stabbed her in the stomach. Mark also said that Jamie told them that he stepped on Amy's throat while she was dying because it made him so angry that she told him she still loved him. The other friend, Scott, also testified that Jamie was usually happy when he was drinking and that he was at Jamie's house the day of the murder and he witnessed him drinking. So by Scott saying this, it's implying that Jamie wasn't aggressive that day because of drinking. So it's not like we can blame the murder on alcohol, like, oh, he got really drunk that day and like he just got so angry and he wasn't in his right mind. Like, no, like his friends say he was actually happy while drinking, not aggressive. Jamie's mother also testified that she saw Jamie drinking whiskey at the house before the murder happened. She also said that he once wrecked his whole room because he was mad at his mother. So as you can see, a handful of people have testified and basically just stated that Jamie was not a good person, that he basically hated Amy. That's honestly what it seems like. You know, it's not like he loved this girl. He 
really hated her and didn't want her to be happy unless it meant her being happy with him. Just the fact that he told all of these people about his plans and just about how much he wanted to kill her is just absolutely shocking. The medical examiner in the case also testified that Amy was stabbed with such force that the knife almost went right through her and out the other side. He also said that Amy had a lot of bruises on her face. Now, Jamie didn't testify at his own trial, but he did an interview with a TV station where he said, quote, I killed someone I loved very much. It's hard for me to express the way I feel. She was everything to me. What? Like, no, you did not love Amy. The fact that he said that in an interview is just so disturbing and that Amy's family had to hear him say that was probably just so heartbreaking. I don't know. I don't really think that he loved Amy. I think he just was obsessed with her. And as I said, he just felt like no one could have her besides him. So the trial lasted for a total of seven days. And then the jury deliberated for six hours over two days before they found Jamie Fuller as guilty. On October 23rd, 1992, Jamie was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One justice of the Supreme Court named Charles Freed said that any life sentence without parole is a solemn and awesome act. He also added that, quote, it is more awesome when imposed on one as young as Fuller, who may expect to live out his young manhood, middle and late years, all in confinement. After the verdict, Amy's dad read a statement. He said, quote, she's not going to have a sweet 16 party. She's not going to ask dad, can I borrow the car keys? I'll never dance with my little girl again. Now, going back to Michael, the friend that helped get rid of the evidence and also gave the tip, his trial happened and his friends also testified against him. In the end, Michael was found guilty, but he was only sentenced to two years in prison. I definitely feel like he should have gotten longer. After both trials ended, Jamie was sent to jail and he was going to be there for the rest of his life. What's truly shocking is that in the summer of 1993, Jamie's mom, Celeste, and her boyfriend, Edward, actually created a plan with Jamie to break him out of prison. Yeah, they literally made a plan to break him out of the prison and just have him be like free and out and about, which is absolutely shocking shocking like why as a mother are you supporting your son and trying to get him out of prison when he literally murdered a young 14 year old girl it's just disturbing that the mom would help her son try to escape jail so their plan was that jamie was supposed to stab himself to the point that he would have to be sent to a hospital off-site and then they would hire two gunmen to help him escape the hospital something to note is that jamie's prison had a hospital of their own so if he did stab himself there was really no reason why he would ever be taken out of the prison but they still wanted to try. So Celeste attempted to purchase two different guns illegally to help with Jamie's escape, but luckily the FBI actually used wiretaps to listen to her phone calls about this plan. So since they knew that Jamie and everyone was scheming to get out of jail, undercover FBI agents posed as these hired gunmen and they said to Jamie that they might have to shoot people so that he can escape. And allegedly Jamie told them, quote, do what you have to do. Now, of course, this was just a setup. So after this, Celeste and her boyfriend Edward were arrested and Jamie was moved to a maximum security prison. And the reason why the FBI was even listening to the phone conversations is because Jamie's cellmate, 
heard about this plan and he actually snitched on him so that's why police were like okay let me like listen in on their phone calls to figure out what plan they have for him to escape Celeste and Edward both pleaded not guilty and her bond was set at $500,000. After this, Celeste was sent to Framingham's woman's prison and Edward was sent to East Cambridge Jail. When Amy's mom, Cynthia, heard about this, you know, about how this woman was literally trying to break out her son from prison after he killed Amy, it just brought so much pain to her and to the whole family. Cynthia said that it was so sick and bizarre that Celeste would help Jamie escape after what he had done. She says that she has absolutely no sympathy for Jamie or even Celeste and said that at least Celeste gets to see her son. You know, she gets to visit him in prison and speak on the phone with him, but Cynthia will never have the chance to see or speak to Amy ever again. Cynthia said that she hoped Celeste would get time in jail for this. Now, Celeste's friends came forward and said that she had really changed dramatically after Jamie's conviction. She used to be a regular at barbecues and a very social person in the past. But now she had become very recluse. You know, she would kind of spend most of her time in her apartment with her shades drawn, which I feel like makes sense. You know, it would be hard to face the public after one of your family members, you know, specifically your son, was arrested for murdering someone. But even then, like, I get that it's a lot for someone to deal with, but I still think that she shouldn't be defending him and trying to break him out of prison. Like, that's just so wrong. On September 9th, 1993, all three of them were charged with aiding and escaping from prison, conspiracy to aid such an attempt, attempt to escape from an officer, and conspiracy to escape from an officer. Their pretrial was set for September 30th, 1993. And in May of 1994, all three of them were found guilty. Celeste was sentenced to six to nine years in prison, while Edward was given two years. As for Jamie, an additional nine years were added to his original life sentence on the account of the escape attempt. In 1995, Jamie appealed his conviction based on a technicality about him being a juvenile, but his appeal was denied. Then, due to a 2013 law change that said giving juveniles life without parole was unconstitutional, Jamie, who is now in his 40s, actually became eligible for parole in 2019. Currently, his hearing has been postponed indefinitely, so there's no update right now if he'll actually get parole. Amy's friends and family definitely do not want him to get parole. And I agree with him. I just feel like he truly should never see the light of day again. You know, he should remain behind bars for the rest of his life because he took Amy's life. So why does he get to go out and live his? And it just seems like he really didn't show remorse for what he did. You know, he literally laughed. He mocked her. So it really seems like he does not care about the fact that Amy is no longer alive. One of Amy's cousins actually spoke out about this and she said, quote, her killer was sentenced to life without parole justice was served and a promise was made. We want that promise kept. There's nothing that can bring back my cousin, but the last thing the family wants is to have to relive this heinous crime. So we will see what happens with the parole hearing. As for Amy's mother, she never really recovered after Amy's death. You know, she wasn't the same after and she did have constant psychiatric visits and she had to be on countless different medications in an attempt to cope with her daughter's death. I mean, look at what this guy did. You know, he ruined so many lives, affected so many people for what? 
out of jealousy. Unfortunately, in 2009, Amy's mother actually passed away at the age of 57 and is said to have passed away of a broken heart. Amy had so much life to live. You know, she was such a beautiful young girl. She was only 14 years old. She was a cheerleader. She wanted to be a hairdresser. She was a good student, a good friend, and a good person. She did not deserve this, and it breaks my heart that at such a young age, she was dealing with such a toxic and terrible, abusive relationship. I just wish that she would have received the help that she needed and it breaks my heart to hear because everyone says that amy would always see the good in people so maybe that's what she was doing with jamie no maybe she was trying to see the good in him despite how abusive he was that's just how good of a heart she had and it's just so unfortunate that this had to happen to her my thoughts and prayers go out to her family and i'm happy that in a way you know she got justice but of course that will never bring Amy back and she just deserved so much more. As I mentioned at the start of the video, there was a movie made based around Amy's murder. The movie came out in 1996 and it's titled No One Would Tell. And as I mentioned, the movie is just absolutely frightening. I remember watching it when I was younger and I just felt like the movie was real. Like I actually thought that Candace was being abused by Fred. That's how good they were acting in this movie. So when I learned that it was based on a true story, it just shocked me even more because it's terrible that something like this happened in real life and it's something that continues to happen in real life to this day. It definitely made me more aware of domestic violence and signs to look out for for your friends and family. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month so I will leave some resources underneath my YouTube video. If you were someone you know is in a situation like this. There are people you can reach out to for help. There are places that you can go to and it's just so important for people in this situation to know that they are not alone and that there is a way to get help. But all right, you guys, that is pretty much all the information I have for today's video. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Amy Carnavali. If you're part of the hashtag audio familia, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. If you go watch the video version later on my YouTube channel, make sure to leave me a comment letting me know that you're from the hashtag audio familia. If there are ever any other cases that you want me to cover, also leave me a comment under my YouTube video or send me a message on Instagram. Don't forget to rate, follow, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel true crime jackie on youtube for full video episodes you can find me on instagram and on tiktok at true crime jackie bye guys